Welcome to this series about the Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights entitled Patient Power, Healthcare Rights and Positive Change. My name's Julie McCrossan and I'm a throat cancer survivor and a patient and family advocate. And this series is hosted by Health Consumers New South Wales and supported by the Australian Commission on Safety and Quality in Healthcare. The Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights basically spells out our rights in relation to access, safety, respect, partnership, information, privacy, and giving feedback to improve healthcare. And this series is all about encouraging you to learn more about this charter and to use it to improve your own and your family's encounter with health services, but also to improve health services for the broader community. This episode is all about giving feedback to improve healthcare, and it's my pleasure to welcome four guests. Welcome to Graham Slade, the Acting Program Manager, Patient and Family Experience, Sydney Local Health District. Uh, to Nat Rattage, a social worker with New South Wales Health, based on the central coast of New South Wales, and the proud mother of a trans son, Kai. And Kai, welcome to you as well. And I know you're a uni student studying psychology. And welcome to Nadine El Kaboot, a Muslim and Arabic community advocate and a youth advocate in southwest Sydney, a cancer survivor. And I know, Nadine, you're particularly passionate about culturally and spiritually appropriate services. Uh, I'd like to start with you, Nadine, because here's the little charter. Um, and my understanding is that when you saw this, you're a cancer patient, you felt encouraged to. To, to speak up and, and write a letter about some of the things that were happening to you. Can you tell us about that? Correct. Um, when I was diagnosed back in 2013 with von Hodgkin's lymphoma, I experienced many obstacles and challenges during my uh, treatments and stay in hospital. And this was during my uh, time uh, with my stem cell transplant where I uh, dinner was being arrived and um, I was handed my dinner plate and I was um, so excited. It smelled fantastic. And then when I looked at it, it was actually a steak. And I asked, oh, wow, is this a steak? Is this halal? And then the um, the person who had delivered it went to check and then came back was like, oh, so sorry, this isn't halal. And I just had a breakdown because I was, I was craving steak so much and um, – but there was, and you actually burst into tears, didn't you? I did. Yeah, I was quite upset because by that point I was one and a half years into my treatments, and I um, it was it was difficult to find halal options that corresponded with what the dietitian was telling me to eat. There was a disparity between what was being presented on my uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner trays and what um, I was being advised by my medical health team so that's when I that's actually when I wrote without even realizing at the time my first advocacy letter where I wrote to the um the food services manager the uh general manager of my local hospital um and a few other people as well where I just gave some feedback and you know just wrote um about just providing options that were culturally and spiritually appropriate for any um, minority groups or any groups that, you know, had similar difficulties that I had. 
Just before I ask you the result, and, and we should say, for, I've had cancer myself, and you lose often lose weight with cancer, so nutrition is, food is part of your treatment, so, so it was a really important issue. But how did you find out who to write your letters to? Because we're all about encouraging people to give feedback, and you were quite strategic, weren't you? Mm. Um, I, you know, it's worth uh, mentioning that I have privileges that most people probably don't have. You know, I was born in this country, so I speak English fluently. I um, also have a good education and a professional background that really armed me with those skills in order to be able to um, do those research and go on the website and find out, you know, who do I address these letters to? Who can I, you know, where do complain? complaints and feedback go to. So I guess it all started with Google researching really and looking at the um, hospital's website or the South District, um, Liverpool, uh, South District, Western Sydney website and went from there and I just really did a bit of research. But I also recognised that not many people have those abilities or those resources, you know, access to internet, speak English fluently, not knowing where to start and where to look. But I would highly always recommend to um, maybe ask while you're in hospital, you know, I have some feedback that I'd like to uh, make. Who can I uh, do that with? And most of the times they will refer you to a patient liaison officer and that patient liaison officer will um, also highlight other places that you can write and, uh, yeah, where you can go from there typically. Now, Nadine, you're involved in a whole range now of community representative bodies and you're very involved with clinical trials and so on. But just in a nutshell, because of our, our time limitations, tell us about Project CHEF and, and some of the other initiatives that you feel you've been able to play a role with in terms of improving food uh, and cultural yeah. sensitivity. Yeah, so Project CHEF came about once from that advocacy letter, actually, and that was maybe three years later, I was asked to join this project that co-designs um, uh, for food where we can integrate and see what needs to be included. So um, from there, I was asked to participate to provide some feedback based on my experiences and what I had encountered and what were the obstacles and challenges. And from there, um, you know, they highlight piloted a project at, I believe, two hospitals at the time. And if that was successful, that was going to be replicated across across New South Wales hospitals. And they also teamed up with Sydney Children's Hospital Network for the implementation of Kids Chef at the Children's um, Hospital in Westmead. So, um, you know, Consistently challenging the status quo, you know, what if and why not when you've gone through certain experiences is worthwhile um, because you get to be part of projects like this. And we'll put information about uh, uh, Project Chef and the Kids One on our uh, the website with all the other information about this series. Again, just in a nutshell, tell us about the, the lack of spiritual support when you had to return... Uh, I think with some recurrence, there was a possibility of the need for palliative care and you faced some challenges there. Could you just tell us about that spiritual issue? Yeah, so I remember when I, um, one day a chaplain walked into my uh, uh, to my room at the hospital and I just was like, who is this? And then he had explained who he was. And you know, at the time, no one told me that this person was coming. I wasn't even asked if I wanted a chaplain to come over. And if I had 
um, being asked, I would have preferred a female because there have been certain issues that I've been more open to speaking in relation to. And particularly young person at that time, I didn't really know any anything about, you know, dying and bereavement support options and all of those things. So, you know, it, it, I, I would have appreciated that someone would have approached me at first and asked me those questions. That way we, they could have catered to my spe uh, specific and special needs at that time. It would have helped immensely and I wouldn't have felt so isolated and alone at the time. And I think your spiritual advisor, that man, was quite embarrassed himself. Uh, he was. He was actually quite shocked when he walked in. He was surprised and didn't know that I was a female myself and... Um, yeah, <laughs> we were both shocked. Uh, just finally, in a nutshell, how did you feel when you got those positive responses around the nutrition to your feedback? How did it make you feel? It was quite positive. I felt that I was making a difference and that at least, you know, if you could help one person um, during their journey, that would have been worth it to me. So, um, you know, sometimes with this type of work, you don't always see the fruits of your labour. Uh, it, it's really long term. And to me, it's, I mean, you know, for the long term, I don't look at the short term. But, you know, anyone that it helps is, um, oh, of course, it makes me happy. And how happy are we that you're here and, and the palliative <laughs> care was not needed? Thank you so much, Nadine. Uh, I'd now like to welcome Nat Nataj and her son Kai to the audience to the to the to talk to us. Now as I mentioned you're you're a social worker with New South Wales Health and the proud mother of a trans son, Kai, and I should say that I think you both marched in the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras uh, for World Pride in in, in yeah. 2023 with the Parents for Trans Youth Equity group. Now Kai, you wrote a letter when you were receiving some services from the child and adolescent mental health service, uh, I've read your letter, a, a, a very coherent, thorough, constructive, uh, an informative letter. I just want to, uh, um, you know, really say what a great letter. In, 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 in a nub of it, what were you trying to communicate about your experience? Um, basically that I felt very uncomfortable with the treatment I was receiving from the services. Um, I was alone in a room with two doctors for 40 minutes and the entire time I was misgendered, which is being referred to with the wrong pronouns, which is very damaging for a child who is trans because it really feels disrespectful to the identity that, you know, you've chosen to identify with. Um, and they also tried to disregard all my diagnoses and convinced me it was simply autism because that's quite often linked with transgender kids. And so even though I had multiple diagnoses from multiple professionals, they were just telling me it was unrealistic and unlikely and that it was all boiled down to autism. Can I come to you, Nat? How did it make you feel? Because you were also involved in saying this is the gender uh, my son wants. You see this yeah. as a safety issue, don't you? It was a really frustrating uh, scenario, primarily because I was stuck in the weight room while this was going on. So I wasn't aware until I was invited into the room. And when the penny dropped and I realised that for 40 minutes he's been putting up with this, but on his own, um, 
just how traumatizing that would be um because at least if i'd been there i could have protected him or spoken up i i feel like the more it went on the less he felt he had the power to do that um but even so when i did come in and actually try and set things straight it you know it, it was an aged male practitioner a cis white male that just was very resistant to to all of it they continued to misgender even when i corrected them multiple times so yeah, that was where we felt something had to be said, um, especially when I mean, we're, we're very forgiving about it. If people do get it wrong, we're, we're appreciative of, of the effort. Um, but when there's zero effort being put in to get it right, uh, some education needs to, to happen. When I have spoken to you before, you did mention safety as a critical issue, which is obviously one of the things on the Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights, along with respect, Guy, which is the other thing you were talking about. Can you explain, for people who don't know the world of transitioning, why mental health is such an important issue? Uh, it's, it's just so closely linked to the journey. It's not an easy time to be trans uh, in the community. And there was, at the time, a lot of negativity in media and politics and sports participation and things like that. Um, so it, it, statistically, trans kids uh, have much higher rates of mental health, uh, self-harm and suicide attempts and or successful suicide. So it was something where in other facets of society, he was already getting pushback and judgment and criticism and all sorts of things that are really hard on at the time he was 15 year old kid. Um, but more so when we're seeking support for his mental health and support for his wellbeing. And even in that space, he's not being seen and not being validated for who he is and who he's telling the world he is. Um, it's, it, it felt very unsafe. It just felt like it was going to magnify his issues rather than heal them. You mentioned um, that you thought training was needed for staff, so this sort of thing didn't happen. If I come back to you, Kai, as I understand, your letter got a pretty good response and you got linked up with someone called Erin Heim. So tell us about the response to your letter and what happened next. Well, Erin was absolutely amazing. Um, just took action immediately and ended up creating a presentation based on my letter to then present to people pretty high up in health and, you know, executives and directors and all those kind of people to help try and implement change in the health system and also did things within um, child, adolescent mental health services, such as, you know, helping implement pronouns at the end of emails and pronouns on name tags, just little things that make big impacts. Look, I have to confess to you, I've only just in the last few weeks finally put my pronouns, uh, she, her, we can't trust everyone in the world knows what a pronoun is these days, but there you go, but she, her. Why does it matter? Why is it important? Help us understand. Well, it just makes it a much more welcoming and safe environment for trans people and makes them feel less isolated or singled out because if trans people are the only ones putting their pronouns in places it would make it so obvious that they're trans and make it so easy to target them and make it so easy to have them singled out or be uncomfortable whereas when everyone does it it just makes it a general thing where you doesn't matter whether you're trans or cis it's just a thing that everyone does and it makes it just safe for everyone and explain cis uh cisgender is when you identify with the gender you were assigned at birth Thank you. The, the training that Erin Hine uh, helped to develop is called Sharing a Trans Young Person's Experience to Improve Our Services. I mean, it's really a golden story, this, isn't it? You, you couldn't have asked for a better reaction. Yeah, yeah, Erin's been amazing. Um, 
really spearheaded a lot of the response and made Kai feel heard and validated, which was incredible. Um, but they've, they've also stayed in touch with Kai and been a really positive uh, influence um, ongoing, yeah, and, and, and also marched with us at Pride at uh, Mardi Gras as well. Wow. And just finally, um, you, you needed to change the name, Kai's um, gender, on the health system files. Just tell us about that. How did you do that and the challenges you faced? Um, I think we had officially changed his name um, on the birth certificate. We had a passport and we had provided that information to health, um, assuming that the gender marker would change along with the name. Uh, but we found out later after several presentations that the, the name would be Malachi Rataj, but there would be a lot of confusion because the system still marked him as female. Um, so Erin again jumped into action, got the right form that we needed and made sure everything went to the right place. And, and within no time, all of that had been updated, which just again helps us with the streamlined care that he now receives. And again, interesting though, that, that the, the help specifically from Erin Hine was needed. That is so interesting. in life, isn't it, in the 21st century is getting the right form. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, <laughs> absolutely. I, I look, I, I'm just so grateful to you, especially to you, Kai, for coming forward and, and sharing your story because I think it, it it really helps people to understand. So, look, thank you. And, well, it's my pleasure now to welcome someone who works uh, with New South Wales Health, uh, receiving feedback and doing something about it. And welcome again to Graham Slade, Acting Program Manager, Patient and Family Experience with Sydney Local Health District. Now, Graham, you've got a, a number of examples where you've received feedback from patients or family and made changes but let's start with a current project where you're employing lived experience educators uh, into paid positions to be involved in co-designing education for your staff and you're even going to have a lived experience educational panel just what's in a nutshell what's the purpose of this and what are you hoping to achieve to embed within our um, education programs the lived experience of our community that come from a variety of backgrounds to underpin their experiences, to tell their story about their healthcare experiences, but also to under, underpin uh, the standards, some of the standards that, that equate with that. Okay, and, and that's just a reminder uh, that this Australian Chart of Healthcare Rights uh, is linked to the accreditation process for hospitals and other health services. So there is a, a standard connected to it. So what's the link between hearing the sort of stories we've just been hearing and enabling staff to keep empathic? I think it's through the education process, um, but also um, making sure that we listen to patients and having, having our lived experience educators on our education programs, that that will reinforce the importance of the consumer message. And I think you're going to share this message. There'll be face-to-face -face forums, there'll be podcasts, videos. You know, you really, you really invest some communication resources in this process. Correct. We're interviewing, starting the interviewing early next week for quite a number of lived experience educators. We've got quite a few that have applied, which is really great. Oh, fantastic. Well, look, let's come to a nitty-gritty example where... You had, I think, a letter, or you'll let me know, but a patient had had a blood transfusion. Something went wrong and they let you know. So what went wrong and then what happened next? So the needle that transferred the blood transfusion to the patient wasn't correctly placed. So the blood had gone under the skin instead of the vein. 
So the patient had written in. I mean, the patient was obviously treated at the time, uh, but she wished to raise that as an issue. Um, she wrote in. We responded to her, but importantly, we worked with her around an education program to remind staff of the importance of monitoring um, and 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 making sure that that, that Kenyon is positioned in the right right spot, obviously, um, and to retrain staff where we needed to, and it all worked well. So it's so interesting the way you're using real life examples to do what is probably regular education and training that you do, but you're linking it always. Because yeah. I've, ha I've had a lot of cannulas as a ca cancer patient, and if it isn't put in correctly, your hand can swell up, can't it? Correct, and we, and we gave a copy of the program to the, the person that was involved, and the person was very happy with the feedback that we'd actually done and the improvements for staff. I think you involved your risk management unit as well. We did, we did. Look, another example is there's been a... Uh, problems for women who had a certain pelvic mesh inserted for medical problems. We won't go into them now. But at Royal Prince Alfred Hospital, RPA, uh, in Sydney Local Health District, you had an advocate come to you to talk about the need for a clinic, a special service. Tell us how you responded to that advocate. That was a multidisciplinary clinic or a request from the advocate for a multidisciplinary clinic. And this was taken up with a passion by our chief executive um, and we worked with the advocate um, so it wasn't a complaint as such um, we worked with the advocate and set up a multidisciplinary uh, um, clinic that was worked with staff and um, and it is running wonderfully well because well, I think people all over Australia are responding to this pelvic mesh issue. Correct, correct. But you are able to actively involve this advocate and other women affected yeah. in your in your clinic. So we, is leadership from the top immensely helpful for someone in your position? It's vitally important mm. because um, that's where we get our change. And that's a belief in our consumers that we need to work with our consumers to affect the change that that we need to do in the system. You, you've got another example because uh, Kai is here uh, 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 and we've heard the story of the challenge of transitioning when I know you have so many health appointments so your engagement with the health system is critical. Uh, but you've had an experience where a patient who was transitioning and I think uh, their general practitioner gave oral feedback, so it was verbal, it wasn't written, to say there were problems in the use of language with with uh, with some patients who are transitioning, the very issue that Kai has raised. Tell us what happened in your health service when that happened. So you're right, Julie. So this was an advocacy issue. So it was a GP that raised the issues with us. So we worked closely with the gender centre and worked closely with the GP plus another GP in the local local district and we set up some training programs and some education programs through our what we call our RPA links programs so and that went across all our staff um, to um, improve the experience of the LGBTQI plus community. And again, you had a speaker from the Gender Centre, so you're connecting with the community. Correct. Uh, Graham, thank you for you know such great examples of, of responsiveness. Um, I, I'd love to come back to you, Nadine, again, if I could, because I'm so aware that in South West Sydney, where you're an advocate, 
uh, around culture and faith and youth. There are so many uh, Muslim people for whom their spirituality is critical, and yet you'll have many people with varied levels of English language uh, uh, efficiency and confidence. So you're talking now directly to some clinicians who are listening to this, watching this. What's your message to them about learning more about your spiritual and cultural needs? My number one tip would be just ask the consumer. Most times they were going to tell you what they specifically need. It's not like this complicated guesswork type of stuff. It's just having a real, authentic, empathetic conversation with the consumer and the carer. You know, a lot of the time we also um, we forget that the carers are an important part of the consumer's journey. So with me, and I know with many others, that their family is very important. So also involving the people that they care about within those conversations is vital. And also, um, you know, when you provide information, just check like with the health charter, if it's in another language and you know that say their carer or a family member speaks another language, even if they speak English, if the consumer speaks English, provide it in both, provide it in English and say in Arabic. Look, thank you. And I'd like to confirm that uh, this uh, Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights is available in many, many languages and we'll have information about that on our website. Look, I just want to say thank you to all of you for your marvellous contribution uh, to this conversation about the value of feedback. Thank you to our guests. Thank you to you uh, for joining us. And for more information and resources about the Australian Charter of Healthcare Rights, go to the Health Consumers New South Wales website, www.hcnsw.com org.au where you can also see information about all our guests the whole series and links to really valuable resources my name's julie mccrossan see you next time